So hello, welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum podcast, a podcast where the storytellers of the museum get together around a microphone and talk about stories. I'm Emily. I'm Pawdy. And I'm Andy. And today we have very exciting, we're recording on the new binaural mic, which just looks like a box with ears. Yeah, it, re- it reminds me of something from Blade Runner, mm-hmm. and it will just, it has that kind of a, an air to it. Yeah, so if things sound a bit different, that's why. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? Places. Nice broad topic. Yeah. <laughs> We're in a place. Yeah. yeah. We're in a museum. Places, places in time. Uh, what is it? There's T.S. Eliot near, near my beginning. Is my end lines in succession? Body's raising the tone. <laughs> Not often you get me raising the tone. Look, at least we don't have biscuit-based filth this time. No, <laughs> no, no. No Mikados. No. Uh, so should we start with stories or start with questions? Uh, let's start with questions. All right, buddy. Do you want to shake the box? Shake that magic box. It's a box of magic. Are these all place-related questions? Or uh, just some of them are, some, some of them are just a random array of questions. This one is written on a brown paper bag. Yes. Classy. How do leprechauns feel about the EU? Well, aren't leprechauns a protected species by the EU? Yeah. I think they were almost. Almost. Almost a protected species by the EU. Right. But I I don't know how they feel about being called a species because that, you know, is deeming them somehow lesser than human. It others them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say that uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're Remainers uh, definitely in an Irish concept because about 90% of people in Ireland are Remainers we're, we're overly fond of the EU the EU sent us a letter last year to say you can cool it down <laughs> coming on a bit strong yeah but leprechauns they do have this sort of trickstery anarchist vibe to them there's that too yeah yeah Though they do love finding loopholes, so maybe hmm. maybe they would enjoy it. I'm trying to think. I mean, if uh, a group of leprechauns sat down in a room with Nigel Farage, <laughs> how exactly would that conversation go? I imagine him tied to the chair mm-hmm. and some sort of weird hostage negotiation going on. Yeah, very, very possibly, very possibly. I, I don't know if Nigel Farage's xenophobia extends to, to leprechauns or not. That could be something, something <laughs> to uh, write into the Brexit party about and inquire. What is your stance on leprechauns? Yeah. And fairies of general. Probably doesn't like fairies because you know they tend to be shapeshifters and they're not exactly one thing or the other, and that would probably scare them. Yes. And the yeah. first leprechaun stories are set in Northern Ireland. King mm. Fergus Mosdaity, King of Ulster. Mm. So if uh, the very first leprechauns were around today they would technically be leaving with the rest of the UK. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we, we have to stop it. If they're going to take our leprechauns. And Boris Johnson raised the possibility of doing something that Fionn McCool did many centuries oh, ago. Yes, yeah. Build yeah. a bridge. Build a bridge. Build bridges, not walls. Yeah. <laughs> we should have learned though that that didn't work out very well for Fionn. So. No, no, it will start a fight. Yeah, it will yeah. start a fight. And then someone's wife will have to come up with a plan to stop us. <laughs> it would be an amazing allegory though, wouldn't it? Though, if Boris Johnson built a bridge and then someone thought, well, Boris, you're getting very big for your boots. I'm going to start a fight with you. I'm going to start my own political party. We're going to take on the, we're going to take on the Conservatives. And they're like, this has happened before. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Inception. Time, uh, we are currently recording uh, at just the start of October. So if this has happened by the time this is released, we have proved that Paulie is a prophet. Yeah. Yeah. And it will happen. Mm. October 31st, do and I. Mm. Um, more questions. More questions. More questions. More questions. Shake a question. Um, what's the difference between a she and the dean of she? Um, Semantics, really, isn't it? It is, I mean, yeah. Is, is that like sort of seely feigned, unseely feigned? I, um, I don't really know the phrase Dina she. 
Lena she would be the, the fairy the people. Oh. Yeah. Whereas the she is the fairies. So the same as in English where you have a fairy folk and you have fairies. You have it in Irish as well, you have the Dean of She and the uh, the She. It might also the Dean of She sometimes as well refers to what's known in, in English as uh, as the, the wild hunt or yeah. the, the migration of the of the fairies uh, at certain times of the year. The fairies lived in I'm, t- I'm turning to the weird ear thing, <laughs> the weird binaural mic thing. Because ladies and gentlemen, it actually it has an ear on the side of it. I'm turning to it like it's a person. And I'm gonna take a picture of this. <laughs> the so the uh, the fairies don't live in the same place the whole year round. Yeah. They migrate at different times of the year. Uh-huh. And um, uh, Raymond E. Feist uh, wrote a, a, a filthy book called Fairy Tale, which is about the, uh, the, these Americans, they buy a house mm-hmm. and the wild hunt goes past the back, their back garden. Mm-hmm. And when you say a filthy book, is this a top shelf book? It is a top shelf book, yeah. I read it quite young <laughs> and I was left scarred. This may explain a few yeah. things about Gordy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know the Wild Hunt. It shows up um, anyone who reads the Dresden Files books. It shows oh up in that, dear. and there's a game, The Witcher. Oh I yes. Haven't played, yeah. but I've seen my brother play, and I think the Wild Hunt shows up in that. Right. And I've sort of seen as very chaotic yeah. horses, and might particularly be seen on Volpurgis Knock. Yeah. Yeah. The the uh, Witcher started out as uh, fantasy novels uh, with a kind of a Polish slant to them, and then they made a game. And now they're going to make a new TV show starring what's his name from Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill, who is he? Jesus? <laughs> no, he Henry Cavill. I think it was John Cazale. No, no, Superman. Well, who was kind of like Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, alien Jesus. <laughs> who, what was the name of the actor who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson. No, he directed it. I tried yeah. to block that movie out <laughs> now for many years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. What is the difference? Um, is it that one is sort of like the high fay and the low fay, or? Um, I don't. I wouldn't see it like that. No, mm-hmm. I think it's just a semantic thing. Is uh, there a difference between the she and the fay? The fay would be more of an English term. Mm-hmm. Would be old uh, English. I'm correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there's a there's a Wikipedia article somewhere who would, would say that they say Paul, you're all wrong. <laughs> Um, That's the title of the article. Yeah, yeah. Body, you're all wrong. Yeah. These Wikipedia articles are getting more and more personal by the day. <laughs> uh, there probably is an article somewhere about all the things Body or whatever Home Museum just made up <laughs> on the spot. The problem is, though, <laughs> if you make something up on the spot and then someone else hears you say it, then they start repeating it, and before long it becomes fact because that's yes. how folklore works. Yes. Yeah. Let's try again, shall we? And this one is, what's the one thing you want uh, visitors to learn from their experience at the museum? Mm. Fear. (laughs) Be afraid. Be very afraid. (laughs) I I don't know if it's a thing I want them to learn, but I want them to to feel they can go out and they can tell a story. That I want them to feel inspired to, you know, go tell stories. We can all tell stories. We all tell stories. Mm-hmm. We are humans. Are in we're innate pattern finders, and we make narratives out of everything. Yeah. We tell stories. It's how we communicate. It's how we understand this mad chaos that is the universe. Yeah, I would echo that. I, I, I think I kind of like people to take away what a uh, what a perennial thing that storytelling is, and how it is this kind of fundamental um, part of being human, particularly with the folklore when. Uh, you you look at a a culture who is largely not even literate in in the sense of you know being able to write things down and being able to read written language, but they were still uh, telling stories and there was still a, a tradition and a craft and an art form, um, and despite the fact that these people, you know, also had quite difficult lives as well, you know, people who were working in the fields. 20 hours a day or whatever 14 hours a day probably and uh, but still took the time to uh, uh, to tell stories yeah yeah
if I can have a second thing, that you shouldn't try to steal the leprechaun's gold. <laughs> yeah. Don't build leprechaun traps, don't try to nick their gold. That's just not nice. Don't go to their parties either. <laughs> <laughs> but only if you're invited. Well, you've already stolen so much away from them. You know, yeah. so why would you try to steal their it's gold? Taking their sunlight. Yeah. Can knowing about Irish folklore and mythology help you in school? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if you mean in the will this get me an A in the leaving cert, probably not. Mm. Though be, knowing the stories and knowing how to structure a narrative and how to structure stories like structuring an argument that might help with your essays. Mm. Uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. Some of the stuff is so. Some of the Irish folklore stuff is so obscure. You could just plagiarize it, and nobody'd realize. Yeah. It. <laughs> but um, I think it can help you understand maybe like certain elements of history. Not that you're doing your special project in history on a mm. topic. But I think that knowing these stories can just help you through life. Can help you navigate and express and come to terms with things you can't even put into words. Like there's this whole theory by, I probably got the name wrong, he was a child psychologist, I think his name was Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote this whole thing on basically why it was important for children to, t- to be told fairy tales. <laughs> that many of the classic fairy tales resolve, revolve around the sort of the conflicts and the issues that almost every child will face in their life and through knowing the story and through living through the story by hearing it or reading it they were able to resolve these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, like with Hansel and Gretel, there being sort of the two types of parent, the parent who pushes the child out too soon, and then the witch who is like the smothering mother, mm-hmm. or smothering any parent, uh, who's overprotecting. Um, but that by nav- working through that story, they're able to navigate mm. their need for both independence, but also reliance on someone else. And he expressed it much more eloquently than I am. Um, he went through sort of a load of classic fairy tales that kids learn and basically saying kids need fairy tales uh, everyone needs fairy tales because through these stories we're able to resolve ourselves it's remarkable to me the amount of Irish stories that is, whose main point seems to be be compassionate yeah. mm-hmm. you know care about other people you know and, and uh, for want of a better way to say it don't be a dick. Yeah. 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 So. And we will all die. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Momento mori is probably should be written over the museum. <laughs> <laughs> Which might not bring get you very far in school, but it will. It'll get you through school. Yeah, it'll yeah. get you through school, and it's good preparation for the life which school is supposed to be preparing you for. Mm. And often not doing the greatest of jobs, <laughs> as as Emily steams in the corner. <laughs> it teaches you a, a healthy suspicion of people who set them up as heroes, mm-hmm. who set mm-hmm. themselves up as heroes. This is one thing that all of the heroes in Irish folklore have in common. And someone eventually will tell you a story in which they were horrible people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, speaking of telling stories, Polly, would you tell us a story? I will tell you a story, um, but uh, uh, just by <laughs> by way of introduction, I often, you know, I often think that we're talking about plays, and I I often think that uh, you know the old vegan joke. How do you know somebody is a vegan? Because they've told everybody in the rumors. Yeah, because day. don't worry, they'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's kind of it's, it's the same with Kerry. It's you know, <laughs> how do you know someone is Ker- is from Kerry? Don't worry yeah, to tell you. Well, they don't even need to tell you. The accent gives it away. The accent does to a certain extent. Although a lot of the my nieces and nephews now have the don't have this accent. They have the, the transatlantic drawl, as it's right. called. Do they all just sound like they're from Dublin 4? Um, well, they all sound like Kerry by way of California. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. Um, I'm just thinking of Quiet Man. Uh, yeah, I, I can see it, like, not on my watch. Um, and uh, Kerry, Kerry is a special place, and uh, Kerry people are, are pretty, well, uh, unique is, uh, is, <laughs> is an interesting way of putting it. Kerry, Kerry, you never hear people from Leitrim tell you that Leitrim is brilliant. It's the most beautiful part of the world. 
it's out of this world, you should really visit Leitrim. When you talk to Leitrim people, usually it's, uh, yeah, I had to get out of Leitrim. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kerry people are slightly different um, and uh, one of the uh, most beautiful parts of, of Kerry is uh, Ballyhaig. Ballyhaig is a beautiful part of the world. It's uh, basically just a long beach and uh, Ballyhaig, lovely people and they really care about their area, they really care about their locality and they're out uh, regularly doing the best that they can for the, for the people out there community ordinary everyday saints there's a little song beautiful beautiful valley hike bay and that's where i want to be and because valley hike people are reasonably proud of where they come from and so this is a story taking place in valley hike this is a story taking place ah, in valley hike yeah thanks thanks for rushing me <laughs> <laughs> And the, the ancient burial place of, of, of the Cantillon family. Cantillon, have we heard the name Cantillon before? Did anyone discover the cantaloupe? No, I did not discover the cantaloupe. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I love that idea. Cantillon is a, is a common name in, in certain parts of Ireland. And uh, the Cantillon family, their uh, ancient burial place was on an island in Valley High Bay and like many irish people they were very fond of the place in which uh, they would be buried and their ancestors had been buried through the years and they they kept it very well and they we like death yes we like death and they decorated it and land and land <laughs> and land this is my plot of land uh, yeah. i'm having yes but unfortunately for the Cantlin family the place where they were burying their ancestors the island was Atlantis style collapsed into the sea and went right oh. down the waves rushed, washed over it and the Cantlins over the years uh, started to put it out there started to put it about in the community that the ghosts of their dead ancestors uh, would carry away their bodies and the coffins they, they were in if you left them on the beach so a member of the Cantlin family died, they went into the coffin, the coffin was placed on the beach and the dead would come and collect the coffin and bring it down to where it was supposed to be uh, buried. And the fishermen sailing by, they saw the steeple of the ancient church underneath the waves and they said, oh yeah, that's where the Cantlins are being buried, down there under the waves in that graveyard. Now, Connor Crow was a Clare man and uh, the the story says which you, you can get in Crofton Croker the original uh, story said that he he drank a quart of salty water every day Why? Uh, a quart for those of you who don't know the Americans listening might know uh, is two pints oh. and he said he he drank this every day for its healing benefits uh, a true seaman, if ever there was. Did no one tell him he could just gargle it? He didn't need to swallow it. Well, uh, he also drank the equivalent amount in whiskey for oh, okay. the same reason. Okay. <laughs> which will, which will give you the ladder must have been destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> so two pints of salt water in the morning yeah. and two pints of whiskey in, in the, the evening, evening. Right. every day. <laughs> People in the nineteenth century were tough <laughs> and despite the fact that Connor did all of these things for his health <laughs> he considered himself to be uh, a dyed in the wool skeptic he was skeptical of everything and he he heard that Flory Cantlin was dead uh, over across the Shannon estuary in Kerry and he decided to cross the Shannon to see if the dead body would really be buried in Cantlin's graveyard under the waves and if the dead would really come out of the water to collect the body. And now he went to the wake and the wake being an Irish wake was <laughs> mighty. There was plenty of good food, plenty of good drink and plenty of good crack. And uh, 
Flory made a beautiful corpse. They were, you know, like the, the you, you always say that when you go to an Irish like, oh, isn't it a beautiful corpse? Oh, just like she's just sleeping. <laughs> she could wake up any minute now. Quick bury her before she does. <laughs> yeah. no. I'm not dead. <laughs> I feel happy. <laughs> Uh, there were primroses and snowdrops, you know. The, the people used people in old Ireland when someone would die and was laid out in the bed would decorate the bed with flowers. That was a, a very old tradition. Probably help with the smell. Yeah, and uh, usually uh, wore a white dress. And about three a.m., her brothers carried the coffin down to the strand, and Col- Connor followed them at a discreet distance, you know, ducking in and out of the laneways in in Ballyhide village. The moon was nice and high and bright. It, it was a clear, it, it was a clear evening. Good for watching things, but it was also frightfully cold, and he clung to his to his his, his wee blazer. Mm. You know, the, everyone in those days had a tweed blazer. Of course, and of course. Uh, you know, uh, I I'm not saying it would be a, necessarily a bad thing to go back to the <laughs> days when everyone wore a tweed blazer. Mm. Just fine. <laughs> and. <laughs> Connor was sure this was all going to be a farce. He didn't think the dead were really coming out of the waves to bury the coffin. Uh, he, he knew back home in, in Dun, Dunmore Tower is County Clare, and Dunmore Tower was said to cry out with the spirits of the dead that were buried in the vaults beneath it. Uh, but in reality, what was happening is Dunmore Tower is on a cliff, mm. and there's a very strange shaped cave underneath the tower and the wind blows in through the cave, out through a wee hole, and it makes a... Um, exactly, exactly. And it's it's like, a, a, like a geographical saxophone. <laughs> yes, that's, yes. <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> uh, so it was just a funny-shaped cave, and Connor was sure that something like, uh, like this was going to happen here. But in the moonlight... He saw the black coffin, the black rocks, and the white pebbly sand. And he thought, you know, this is beautiful. I'm kind of feeling a bit regretful now for, for, for doubting these people and for interfering with their, their mourning. And so he, he decided that he, his curiosity was, uh, was quenched. He just settled in for a snooze. So he tucked himself into one of the sand dunes fell asleep now when he when he woke up the 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 dawn was just coming was the first blush of dawn you know that kind of grayish yeah that kind of grayish kind of blush of of uh, the air whereas it's still dark but also bright and faintly at first he heard a low keening hit it there emily And this rose and rose in volume until it became a whale, like the whale of a Then it stopped. <laughs> and four mysterious figures emerged from the waves. And they surrounded the coffin and they prepared to launch it into the sea. Tiresome, loathsome, obsequious rituals like this are the kind of nonsense it comes from marrying a land dweller. True, said the second one, but also, remember, the king would never have ordered the waves to take the island had not Durfallus, fool of a mortal husband, buried a princess of the sea on land, the Egypt. But the time will come, said a third, when mortal eye our work shall spy and mortal ear our work shall hear, then shall we be freed of our task. You see, it wasn't the dead uh, that buried the cantonists, it was the marrow people, uh, the, the underwater fairies, uh, the fairies driven into the sea who use a little red cap to breathe under the water. The cantonists had just told people it was the dead to stop them from be- breaking the gasset. The, the, the spell, the, the gasa on it was that they would continue to bury the cantalans as long as nobody watched them do it. 
So the, he's up on, up in the sand dunes. He's watching. They haven't spotted him. But the cold air, remember, it's very cold, has gotten to Connor and... Choo! Little bit of a sneeze. The four boys turn from the coffin to see the little man up in the sand dunes in his tweed jacket, gazing at them in amazement. The Merrow men, just a smile on their faces. They push the coffin out into the waves and dove down into the depths. Never again after that was a cantilon buried by a sea creature. But sometimes the sailors still see them play in the ruins of that chapel beneath the wave. I wouldn't have liked to be at the next funeral after Flores. No. Where they, they, they don't know it yet and they put the coffin there and they come back the next day and it's still there. Yeah. Uh, probably what would usually happen in <laughs> usually <laughs> would, uh, this is a regular thing in Kerry yeah, what would happen in that situation is well I suppose we'd have to have a second wake so a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wake could go on for three days yeah, yeah. excuse yeah. Let's, let's have another question before we yeah. Andy shake, 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 shake. shake it like a pond rock so we have another uh, brown paper bag here Easy question written on it. No, oh. you're supposed to leave cash in the bra in bra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not questions. These people need to take some advice from their local TD. That's what I say. <laughs> Experts in taking brown envelopes. <laughs> uh, did leprechauns marry? So we were briefly chatting about this one before we came on the air. Uh, so I would say the most famous married leprechaun couple there is would have to be the Kim and Kanye of <laughs> it is it's Ubdon and uh, and Bebo of course um, but I don't think we've ever heard anything about their their wedding day or their their courting process uh, I think that's sadly omitted from the annals well the annals recall recount them having a full court mm -hmm. so you I would imagine them having the kind of wedding you're, you're too young to remember yeah you're too young to remember Charles and Diana getting married yeah yeah be that or who was the, who was the latest um, Camilla Camilla uh, no, oh no the, um, the, the ginger one Harry and uh, Meghan Markle Parasites <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on um, yeah, so they probably had a full uh, court uh, wedding a full proper I wonder, was it a love match or was it a political alliance? Uh, they have an open marriage, though. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, the, the Fergus was sleeping with Bebo. While she had, uh, while he had Obdon kid, kidnapped and held captive yeah. somewhere. And uh, he was, they, they were having sex regularly. And loudly. And, and loudly. And uh, for a little lady, she sure had a set of lungs on her. Yeah. And well, as well, I think part of the joy for Fergus, because he is a, a, a bit of a see you next Tuesday, part of the, of the joy for Fergus is rubbing it in afterwards. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Fergus, or he goes to Obdon and he says, you slept with your wife last night. I know, I heard. Glad you enjoyed yourself. And Fergus still isn't getting any kind of joy out of this, so he does it again, goes back the second day and says to Obdon, I slept with your wife. I know, I heard. She enjoyed herself. And he, Fergus is getting very frustrated now at this point, and he goes back to Obdon a third time and says, I slept with your wife. I know, I could hear you both. Glad you're having a good time, but I think you've got a bit of a problem, Fergus. Yes. Obdahan was basically saying you're getting a bit greedy now but he didn't really care about the fact that uh, Bebo was sleeping around. In fact the thing that really annoyed Obdon was that when he was held prisoner he wasn't given a nice bed <laughs> yeah. he, wasn't, he wasn't given a bed of the right status for a king mm. and that's what was really pissing him off not that not really the fact that he was kidnapped or the fact that his wife had decided Fergus was a bit of all right but the mm. fact that he didn't have a nice bed 
Yeah. How many he could have been experiencing a nice bit of compersion. Compersion. You heard the word compersion. No. Yeah. This is this is a a word that comes to it tends to come up from people engaged in the lifestyle. So swingers, oh, yeah, etc. Right. They talk about compersion, and it's the uh, the satisfaction of uh, witnessing your significant other engaged with another person. So is it the same as the thrill and the joy that you get out of that? Like a couple could affect it, or is it just knowing that they're having a good time? Um, I I think it's uh, I think either one of those scenarios could be described as a form of compersion. Yeah. Yeah. Learn something new every day. So the answer to the question is yes, leprechauns did marry, (laughs) but it tended to be open marriages yeah love don might as well have had the same uh, tastes as william of orange they had a queen and children but tended as a as his queen pointed out to prefer he didn't mix business and pleasure to to prefer the company of young men Uh, yeah anyway Uh, moving That's swiftly on. That's fan fiction. Write the fan fiction now and send it in to me. I want to read it. Oh, God. Oh, God, Polly. <laughs> Don't encourage them. Um, so, uh, I guess we'll have another story then, shall yeah. we? Yes, let's, ha- let's have another story. So, um, I, my story is tied to a particular place also, a place uh, that I have not researched as much as body research belly hike <laughs> I've never even been to the place I have, I have never in my life paid a visit uh, to the county of Donegal sadly because what? yeah yeah uh, and I hear it is a very beautiful place uh, so I would like to take it off the list at some stage um, our, our general manager Mark is the summer there as a kid yeah and there's, apparently there's some kind of lemonade that they only oh, do oh football special football special that they only do in Donegal right. you can't get anywhere else no you can't get it once you're over the border Donegal okay once you have a connection or smuggle it in for you uh, my my flatmate is actually from Donegal so maybe I'll ask him to bring me home a, a bottle next time he, he, he ventures home but um, now Mark and I were actually in the box office one day recently and uh, one of our visitors had, uh, the way she got to Ireland is that she flew into the airport in, in Donegal. I didn't know there was an airport in Donegal. Nor did we. And so we Googled it and um, it was the most, the, on Google Images we saw that this was the most beautiful runway that I've ever seen in my wow. life. Like yeah. it was a runway right there on the coast. And it was like a genuinely aesthetically pleasing runway, which I just I had no idea such a thing existed. I guess just not, probably not too far from that runway, 12 kilometers off coast of Donegal, you'll find an island called Tory Island. Um, and apparently the sea surrounding Tory Island tends to be particularly wild. Uh, back in the times of the Tuatha de Danann, who you, I suspect, must have been mentioned multiple times on the the podcast at this stage, they were a mystical, magical race of beings that were sent to inhabit Ireland thousands of years ago. Um, so the Tuatha de Danann found themselves besieged by the Fomorians. The Fomorians were this tribe of pirates that lived on Tory Island. Totally not Vikings. <laughs> totally not Vikings. But nonetheless, big, ugly brutes. Uh, and the biggest and ugliest of them all was said to be known as Balor of the Evil Eye. And uh, whenever I hear of a bad guy with a really cool name, <laughs> I always ask myself, how did that bad guy get that cool name? And apparently, Balor's story was that he, uh, as just a young boy, he had stumbled across uh, some druids performing a ritual of some kind, and the, the, the broth from their potion fizzled over and got right in his eye, and uh, this meant that his eye had been cursed by black magic. So most of the time, he kept this eye of his closed to the point where the lid became very, very heavy, so heavy, in fact, that he had some of his goons essentially install this whole 
system of pulleys and chains that would open his left eye at the right time. Yeah, there we go, the sound effects. And so, um, because the, the, the time, of course, that he would open uh, this evil eye of his would be when he was on the battlefield or when he was confronted with an enemy of any kind. And in those situations, whoever Balor looked upon with his evil eye would fall down dead in front of him. So he became feared by all his enemies and he would regularly sail to Ireland. He would plunder, pillage and loot from the two-headed Danon. It got to the point where Balor thought that nobody would ever bring him down due to how powerful he had become. But then, of course, one day, Balor's druid came to him with a prophecy. His druid told him, Balor of the evil eye, beware. One day you will have a grandson. Your grandson will grow up to be a great warrior, and he will be the very man to strike you down dead. Kids these days, no respect for the older generation. <laughs> so of course, of course, Balor was very, very worried by all of this. Now, at that time, he had just one daughter by the name of Ethleen, and so Balor did what any loving father would do in this situation. He had Ethleen imprisoned in a great big glass tower, which was guarded by only women, so that way she would never set eyes upon any man and there would never be any grandchildren on the way. Now, the years went past, Ethelene grew alone in her tower, and every night in her dreams, she would see the same face. It was the face of a man, and Ethelene thought that this was the most beautiful face that she had ever seen in her life. Now, at that same time back in Ireland, there was a handsome young warrior of the two-headed Annan by the name of Cian. And Cian had this one uh, prized possession which he valued more than anything else in the whole world. Uh, today in Ireland, much like anywhere else, we have become very materialistic people. Uh, we tend to value things like fast cars and whatever the latest iPhone that came out was. Uh, but of course, Cian came from a diff very different time thousands of years ago and his favourite possession in the world was his cow. This was a very, very nice cow. It was a cow which was famous all around for giving the finest milk that you've ever tasted in your life. Keenan brought the cow with him everywhere he, he went. He really loved the cow. He really loved it. It was a green, wasn't it? Glass cow, yeah. It was a green cow. I didn't yeah. even know it was a green, green. cow. Okay. green cow. Yeah. And the great thing about it was that no matter how long you milked it for, it never went dry. Mm. And that is that is a dairy farmer's wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is, I'm not surprised. The dairy farmer would be creaming himself over that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, come on. <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to pick up that one. Um, I'll line them up. Knock them out of the park. So, um, yeah, the so he brought the cow with him everywhere he went because he was very wary of bandits coming for his cow, and this was not sheer paranoia on his behalf because, of course, Balor of the Evil Eye was in the middle was in the middle of hatching a plan to steal Cian's cow from him. He used black magic to disguise himself as this very innocent-looking little boy, uh, a, a ginger. A ginger. A ginger, the most innocent of all the innocent-looking little boys. <laughs> and so... You look at them and you think, you're going to have a tough kid. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps that was exactly what Kean found so disarming, because Balor, in disguise as this little ginger boy, offered to mind Kean's cow while he went off to the blacksmith to get his sword repaired. Uh, and Kean agreed to this, as I said... He was a handsome young warrior of the two-headed Danon. I did not say he was a smart young warrior of the two-headed Danon. The moment that the moment that Kean turned his back, Balor made off with the cow when he realized that he had been tricked. He was absolutely devastated. He sought out everybody he possibly could to see if there was anybody who could help. And finally he found a druidess 
by the name of Birog that agreed to come to his aid. So Birog came up with an idea, a kind of a half-formed plan. So she said to Cian that uh, Balor has taken something precious belonging to you. Why don't you take something precious belonging to him? <laughs> See, far away, Balor has this great big glass tower which is so carefully guarded Nobody has ever even gotten close to it. And so Keen says, Oh, tell me, Birog, what is in this great big glass tower? And Birog says, I don't know. Did you not just hear me say that nobody has ever even gotten close to it? But I tell you this much, Keen, it's got to be something important, and we are going to find out what. I mean, you don't keep your lunch in a big glass <laughs> tower, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> you know? Or your dirty socks. <laughs> no. Yeah. And so... The only way in the country would be safe is if I kept my <laughs> dirty socks in a glass tower. <laughs> so, so, so Birog says, says to, to Kian, we are breaking into that glass tower and Kian, you are going to do what a man has to do. And by that I mean... You are going to dress up like a woman. Because, of course, the only way of getting Kian even close to this big glass tower that was guarded only by women was to dress Kian up as a woman. So she had him put on her very finest frock. Kian looked amazing. I mean it, RuPaul, eat your heart out. And very... Uh, part of me worries that this was just all an elaborate backstory. <laughs> So he could finally be his true self. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in those days, you probably had to find any excuse you could. So, so Birog summoned up a great wind, which carried them both off to the glass tower. Once they were inside, Birog cast a spell, which made all of the women standing guard fall into a deep, deep sleep. With that, Kian threw off his disguise. He ran up the tower stairs, pushed open the door and stood there in amazement as he gazed upon the most beautiful woman he had ever seen in his life. It was Ethleen, and when Ethleen looked back at Kian, she saw none other than the same face that she had seen in her dreams a thousand times before. It was love at first sight. The two of them lay together right there and then, and let's just say that pretty soon the walls of the glass tower Got pretty, pretty steamy. Now, so the young lovers, they soon found themselves interrupted by Birog. She takes Keen aside and she says, Keen, can, can I talk to you for a second? Do you realise that your new girlfriend is none other than Balor's daughter? I had no idea this is what he was keeping in the glass tower. We are in over our heads. We have to get out of here right now. And so with that, once again, Birog summoned up the great wind. They were carried off, leaving Ethleen behind in the glass tower. The two young lovers were absolutely heartbroken. Ethleen even more so as she soon discovered she was now going to be bearing Kian's child. And of course you know what that meant, that now the grandchild, as foretold in the prophecy, was on the way. So as soon as word got back to Balor, he did his most evil deed yet. As soon as the baby boy was born, he was whipped from its mother's arms and thrown straight into the sea, the wild Donegal Sea. And as the child was floating along the waves to what should have been its certain death, who was flying overhead on a great wind, only Birog, the druidess. So she swooped down, she took up the child in her arms, carried it back to its father, and Cian was overjoyed to be reunited with his infant son, named the child Lu, and of course Lu grew up to be the great warrior of the two of Danann, Lu of the Long Arm, defeating Balor, freeing his mother Ethelene from the glass tower. But all of that, I'm afraid, is another story. Sorry, that story is turning me into a very angry feminist. <laughs> <laughs> no, so no, much patriarchy. If it needs to be said, it needs to be said. Yeah. Know? Well, it's just the the whole thing, the trope that comes up so much of the born sexy yesterday. 
that as well, but also the uh, the older man protecting the woman's virtue, locking up. Um, if you lock a princess up in a tower, you're basically asking for a prince to come along. But this idea of locking yeah. away the virtue, mm. and Keen's thing of you stole my cow, so as revenge, I'm gonna steal your daughter's hymen. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm just getting cross. I'm grumpy. I'm tired. Um, it's a product of its time, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the going into the whole tapping into sort of certain things that have been in the news recently about mother and baby homes and mm. historic abuse cases and the ripping the child away. Mm. And what happened? What happened to Ethan after? Never Do we know? No. Yeah. I mean, I normally say that 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 Lou um frees her from from the tower. I don't actually remember reading that in, in any of well, the, the written her. versions, but I, I always just like to add that bit in for my own sort of peace of mind. Yeah, he does. <laughs> we 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 know we know more about his stepmother, Charlotte Chul, than we do about his mm. his mother. So the the great image though where, where Birog and Blue were flying across and he's in his nappy. And the uh, the nappy fin falls out and forms a lake in Donegal, of and so on. Birog carries him off with his nappy flying through the air. Mm-hmm. There's also in some versions, Essen she didn't just give birth to one baby; she gave birth to triplets. Oh. Yeah, and um, one boy, two girls, and uh, they got all thrown into the sea, uh, but only Lou survives. Ah. The two girls turn into dolphins. Fungi. And yes, so fungi <laughs> is divine. Fungi is a, well, a demigod. Well, you see, this is where size always get, like the Fomorians are the giants. You never know what size. But they're size. not always giants. Yeah, they're not always giants. So you never know quite what, like, the story will tell you that Balor uh, needs four ordinary men to lift up his eyelid. Mm. And Lou, his nappy pin forms a lake in Donegal. But Cian and, and Etna are both the same size, so the sizes are always confusing. Yeah, it's, it's like leprechauns, they, they change size to whatever sort of area they're in. Yeah. Also, maybe it was just they were flying really, really high up, so the, the force yeah. of the pin falling. Maybe. So, shall we have another question? Yes. yes. Yeah. Let's have a question. Uh, why do we have so many stories in Ulster? Did they just write more stuff down? So even that story, Tori Island, yeah. took place off Ulster. Oh yeah, Tory Island, only place in Ireland that still has a king. Yeah. Still has a king. King of Tory Island. Wow. He died there recently, so they're currently mm. in the process of electing a new one. They also elect their kings, which yeah. is... <laughs> so why do we seem to have so many more stories from Ulster, or do we just know more from Ulster? It's a, it's a combination of things. Uh, obviously, the, the tawn as an epic gives you a lot of information. Mm. It is a proper epic it's really long and there are uh, several stories and backstories woven into it the tone was preserved for a very long time both in the oral and the written so because the tone was preserved we know a lot more Ulster stories um, Ulster is also the centre of early Irish Christianity oh. so even today the, the head of the Catholic Church in Ireland is based in Armagh Mm. So it's obviously uh, the Christian monks writing down mm. Ulster is the centre, mm. uh, they copying stuff they heard around them. Oh. Uh, but mostly it's because the tone was so very well preserved uh, through mm. the ages and gives you a lot of information in the background. Mm. Yeah. Uh, my story. Mm. Right, so um, I'm from Dublin. Know already, uh, and Dublin doesn't have a lot of the old myths and things because um, well Dublin sort of became a, a city and looked down on that stuff quite early on. But my dad is from Castlenock, which has some great stories and great histories. Uh, it's next to Chapel Isolda, which is like everyone knows Tristan and Isolda. That's where she ends up. Mm. Tristan and Isolda. It's a love story about when you mix up the rohypnol and the poison. When that <laughs> um, but my dad, my dad was from Castlenock, and he went to Castlenock College, which is a was a boarding school when he was there, and is built on the site of an old Norman castle, which gave Castlenock its name, Castlenock, mm-hmm. because that's a castle. Mm-hmm. Irish names, they're very original. Mm-hmm. 
and it didn't help in Bally. Sorry, but it didn't help in Bally Longford. The castle is called Carrigan Thuil, which is the Rock of the Hole. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So they didn't. They didn't. They didn't put castle in there. All right. Well, castle Knock. They, they said we've got a castle. We're calling the place Castle Knock. Um, but my dad told me a story about Castle Knock that was circulating very much uh, in, in a slightly different version when he was at school the story of the White Lady of Castlenock. Mm. Because Castlenock was owned uh, by the Tyrrells, who were the barons, I think they were called the Red Barons at one stage. And they, they weren't all very nice men. Mm. And at some stage, I think around the 14th or 15th century, the baron left his brother in charge of the castle because he had to uh, go up and uh, I think Robert de Bruce was threatening to invade or they were to make him king. Yeah, there was a there was a bit of a, a political thing, and he, he needed to be somewhere else. So he left his brother in charge, and his brother had a bunch of mates who were knights. They were, and and the things that they liked most were arson, alcohol, and adultery. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Triple A. Uh, and so they were having a wonderful time. They had an entire castle. No one was going to oppose them because well, they they were the they were the baron's brother's mates. Uh, they were drinking, they were terrorising people, they were burning villages down and abducting people just for the lols. But they made the mistake of abducting Eileen O'Brien and she happened to be the daughter of a Wicklow chieftain and he said, had enough of this. So he went straight up to Dublin through the Pale, which was the big wall around Dublin which separated the civilised from the uncivilised and found, uh, found some knights of his own and began to wage war against the Tyrrells. Now, the Tyrrells were in a Norman castle, it was pretty well defended, it was on a hill, it had strong things, and if they just sat in there, they probably would have been fine. But they were like, we're not gonna cower behind our walls like a child behind its mother's skirts. Cower so, behind your walls, cower yeah. behind your walls. These Irish are so primitive. Yeah. <laughs> so they stormed on out and were massacred. Mm. Unfortunately, Eileen had been locked up in one of the towers that didn't face where the battle was happening. And she knew about the reputation of these men and what her future was likely to hold. So she heard someone coming up the stairs and in a panic made, made the only choice she thought she had. She took the brooch pin from her cloak and used it to open a vein in her neck and died just as her rescuers opened the door. Yeah. And her ghost was said to have still walked around Castle Knock. Um, it was said when Crown Castle Knock was bought by the Vincentians in the 18-somethings, and they were deciding well, we're going to build a school here, the workmen refused to work after the sunset. And in Ireland, the sun can start, if it's winter, the sun can start setting at four. Yeah. Because they said as soon as it started to get dark, they would see a woman walking back and forth dressed in white. And that this woman walked not on the ground as it was, but the ground as it had been. Because the levels of the earth had changed, the castle had yeah. fallen down, the hills had risen and fallen, they'd been digging foundations, and sometimes she would be walking two feet above the ground, sometimes she'd be walking up to her knees in the earth, and they just wouldn't yeah. do anything. And the Vincentians went, well, okay, let's do a bit of history. This must be the ghost of Eileen O'Brien, who is serving out her penance in purgatory. Because according to the Catholic Church, oh, of course. suicide oh, is a mortal yeah. sin, yeah. and they deemed that what she had done, even though it was done out of an act of desperation, they they deemed that she should be punished for it. Mm. But thankfully, the Vincentians thought, well, she probably has been punished enough, and so they performed a blessing on the place to basically tell her soul, you can you can rest now. And it has not her ghost has not been seen since, except then they set up a boys' school there. Oh. And uh, when a bunch of teenage boys hear that there's a ghost, well, they're definitely going to use it for some mischief. Yeah. So right up until the time my dad was there, there was White Lady Day. Oh, God. And this was, I think it was the 6th of December. They had a half holiday day. And it was tradition in the school that the second years, at the dead of night, would, avoiding the dean, dress up in white sheets and run through the rooms of the first years, having primed them for a couple of weeks beforehand with stories of the ghost mm -hmm. and scared the living Jesus out of them. And this continued until one year the white lady came armed with water pistols 
and then they decided, okay, look, we really have to put a stop to this. Right, yeah. uh, but the story got changed quite a lot as it was passed on through word of mouth. Like when my dad was there, they, the story was that Eileen had been his Tyrrell's wife, who had refused to give in to his lasacious desires, and had then been walled up in the castle. Hmm. And uh, I spoke to a student who's, who's probably now just finishing it, but the story of his thing was that she had been an adulterous wife who had been thrown out a window. So the story got sort of changed and transmuted as it went on through the generations, with Eileen becoming a lot less of a victim and becoming a lot more of a villainess. Yeah. Um, or is there any Bram Stoker connection? Possibly. Because that's the, that's the author, well, it's an author since I read the book, but it's also the opening sequence of the, of the film, you know, where she thinks he's dead, and so she takes her own life. Yeah, um. I think that bit though was made up largely by a fan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, though Kazanok, it's an interesting place, my, I don't know if this is true, but my dad claims that on the grounds of Castlenock College there is a cairn. And according to my dad, this is where the father of Fiona Cool is buried. Cool. Oh, wow. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, the, looking at just the stories he has from his time in boarding schools are weird places. Yeah, yes. Um, but there would have been sentient. Uh, priests and there was one priest who had a caravan at the end of the playing pitches that the boys were all told oh don't go near there he's the science teacher it's radioactive <laughs> and, the, yeah, and there was a rumour going around that he was doing some work for NASA right. and yeah year, years later after my dad left the school this priest actually happened to be serving to help him with my grandmother's funeral and my dad asked him look when you were at school there was this, this rumour there's only truth to it so, uh, yeah there was actually wow there was a priest in a 70s caravan in Kalsanok, behind the playing pitches, doing work for NASA. Did he say what kind of work he was doing for NASA? It, it, it was something mathematical, I think. Ah, yeah. Um, but yeah. If anyone from Astronomy Ireland is listening, uh, could, you, uh, can you, <laughs> could you communicate with us, yeah. verify? I'll, I'll try to find from my dad what his name was, but yeah. Mm. Priests in caravans working for NASA. Anything more Irish than that? Yeah. <laughs> now today is today is a pretty lonesome uh, day outside in the sense that it, it is bucketing down rain. Yeah. Um, hurricane or uh, typhoon Lorenzo is about oh, to is hit. Oh, is that what they call it? Lorenzo. Yeah. Yeah. Sexy typhoon. Yeah. Either Lorenzo or Roberto. One of the two. It's going to ravish the country. Yes. Um, uh, so I thought it might be fun to ask. Uh, on this lonesome day looking out if you could be anywhere else in the world right now where would it be? At home curled up in a cup of blankets with a cup of hot chocolate and my dogs No, new ending If I could be anywhere else in the world where are you on this day um, I, you know what I'd, I'd like to be in Donegal <laughs> as, as we established earlier on it's somewhere that I have to take off the list and um, they put myself in the running to be king of Tory Island because you know I'm, I'm I mean Andy you've made a great king I think so I think king so King Andy the first yeah. yeah I've like I've always said that I'm very much opposed to monarchy but I'm I'm pretty sure that as soon as I actually got <laughs> made a king that would change very well, rapidly I mean it's an elected so. monarch so. yeah yeah what about so. you Paulie? Oh, Fire Island in the seventies. Where's Fire Island? It's uh, it's uh, outside New Jersey in the United States. Okay. Yeah. It, it was quite a quite the gay overlay. Yeah, the happening yeah. place to be. In, right. in, yeah. Not States. not Australia and Home and Away. <laughs> you mentioned it this time. Yeah. You Look, mentioned you have to you mention mentioned, it. Yeah. Because that's why Irish people watched Home and Away. Because it was, it was sunny. Because it was sunny. It was, you know, it's the aha thing of the sun always shines on TV. You turn on Home and Away and it's always sunny. Even though the actors tell you that sometimes it's bitterly effing cold there. Yeah, so... They yeah. do get winter in Australia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And most of them didn't know how to surf. Even uh, <laughs> Alf was an amazing surfer, though. Yes, uh, Alf was an Olympic surfer. And now that we have met our requirement of mentioning home and away at least once, climbing, we bid you adieu. Mm. Au revoir. Oh, um, 
almost forgot. If you want to get in contact with us, how can they do that, Paulie? They can do it uh, through uh, our Twitter, Leprechaun uh, underscore IE, is it? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah, and through our Instagram, uh, Leprechaun Museum on Instagram. And you can also just email in to us or um, Carrier Pigeon. We've uh, got a snazzy new post box in the gift shop. Yeah, so if you're visiting, pop a note in there. Maybe um, your bank account details, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a list of fears. A list of fears. Oh. Sacrificial babies. What? I sacrificial babies. <laughs> <laughs> These are babies <laughs> that I would be happy for you to sacrifice in a blood ritual to give you eternal life. Emily. Emily's really 1,050 <laughs> years old, ladies and gentlemen, and the babies have been keeping her alive for <laughs> centuries now. I'm feeling my age. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.